I'm going to tell you something. My life is changing, and it's not great. Somewhere I read the freedom of speech. Well, the next one. It still looks like a war zone here. It looks like ground zero. Well, the next round hit my husband, hit my soldier. Does he have a crush on me? No. Figures. I just believe I'll die for my cause. Hearing is seeing. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary. It was like roach infested. I mean, you open your cabin and a gag of roaches jump out from everywhere. The wretched public housing projects in Chicago are being torn down. New, cleaned up homes are taking their place. Grass, trees, cut and manicured lawns. It was like stuff I saw on TV, but I'd never seen it before with my own eyes. It's a bold experiment, mixing poor and middle class people to decrease poverty. Simply putting people to live next to each other in proximity is not going to be enough. I'm Stephen Smith. In the coming hour, After the Projects, from American Radio Works. First, this news. My story in the projects. As I walk out the door... Michael Whitehead kept an audio diary last summer at the Ida B. Wells Housing Projects on the south side of Chicago, where he lived. First thing I noticed... Janitor has not did anything whatsoever in the building today. Odors of urine hit you as you walk out the door. Sometimes Michael walked out to the smell and the sight of human feces. Oh, that's Homeless people frequently spent the night. They used to wash up in the janitor's pail. <clears throat> Just like the other day, I come out my apartment. Guy laying on the floor, hollering, screaming, still got the needle in his arm. So you get sick of seeing it, but what can you do? What you can do is move the people out. That's what Chicago is doing. The city's in the middle of a massive undertaking to empty out the old housing projects. The buildings around Michael's are boarded up. Michael's building is next. He'll have to go. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, After the Projects. I'm Stephen Smith. Around the country, public housing projects are coming down. The idea is to break up areas of concentrated poverty, to move poor people into middle-class neighborhoods, to help them find a better life. American Radio Works wanted to know whether the new plan is really changing lives. We decided to focus our story in Chicago, and we asked Chief Economics Correspondent Chris Farrell to lead the inquiry. Hi, Chris. Stephen, we chose Chicago because it has more public housing residents than any other city except New York. And public housing is for the poorest of the poor. They pay little to no rent. So when we think of inner-city housing projects, we think of places that are wretched and dangerous for the people who are living there. But your research shows that they weren't always this way. No, the modern era of public housing really started with FDR's New Deal. In the 1930s, during the Great Depression, people were losing their jobs. They were living in slums. And the idea was to build some good housing with modern amenities like running water and fixtures that worked and move out of the slums and live for a period of time with your family in better circumstances until you could get yourself back up on your feet. And for a period of time, they worked. But by the 1980s, these complexes that were segregated from the rest of the city, they deteriorated and drug dealers took over, the gangs moved in. And most disturbing of all, you ended up with persistent poverty, generation to generation. It was not a temporary home, but a permanent home. So now, across Chicago, these public housing projects are coming down. And they're coming down in other places like St. Louis, Baltimore, Atlanta. But the question is, where are the people going to go? Where are they going to live? And a new idea has taken hold. Place matters. In a lot of these public housing complexes, Remember, block after block, you had many poor people living together, and they were surrounded by crime, and the schools weren't very good, and there were no job opportunities. But what if you moved people into a neighborhood where you had good schools, job opportunities, people were going to work every day? What might then be the prospects for their children? Over the next hour, we'll talk with residents of Chicago's public housing projects as they are forced either to leave their homes or to change their habits. Many of them have never known life outside the projects. They've never had to pay rent. They've never had to sign up for utilities. And many of them are bewildered by the choices they've been facing. 
The 25,000 families who used to live in the Chicago projects have three choices. They can look for an apartment and use a government voucher to help pay the rent. They can choose a public housing unit in a mixed-income neighborhood, or they can choose a place in a cleaned-up, downsized version of the projects. The hope is that the new homes will mean new lives, perhaps with new jobs or with schooling. The results, so far, are mixed. Mr. Whitehead, this is Sandy Roberts. I work with Melanie Tony, and I'm going to take you to see your apartment today. Uh, are you ready? Okay, well, will you come out to the curve? I'm driving a gray, silver-looking Scion. That's the little box car. Sandy Roberts is part of an army of social workers deployed by the government to move Chicago public housing residents to the private sector. The social workers have three months to get everyone out of Ida B. Wells, including Michael Whitehead. Your voucher should say how much rent that you are going to be paying according to your income. Did you look at your voucher sheet? It was so many papers, I didn't know which was which. Okay. This is it. No, that's not it. That's not it. The social workers told Michael he had several options for new places to live. He decided to take what's called a Section 8 voucher. He'll find a private apartment. The government will pay his new landlord most of his rent. Michael will be responsible for utilities. He's never looked for an apartment before. That's why he's getting help. But your fear is what, again? That like you... I say, I don't want to go somewhere and then uh, have problems. Like, uh, like I say, with the light deal or whatever. Well, one of the good things is you can control your lights. That means you can turn them on and off at will. Yeah, that's true. Right? That's true. So if you feel that you're using too much, you can. But you, you know. I wouldn't know that until the first bill come. But I don't think you'll have much to worry about light. Michael has uh, never paid a light bill. A lot of Sandy's clients, like Michael, have no experience living outside public housing. Michael moved to the projects when he was nine. Now he's 57. Like I say, I have worked all my life and stuff. It's, it's not that I'm scared of work or don't want to work it. It's just not happening for me yet. Michael has been unemployed for several years since a construction accident left him blind in one eye. He lives on about $300 a month from the government. He pays no rent at Wells. Sandy drives him back there, past boarded-up buildings, to the one where he lives. This is 540. This one is building they closed. We emptied this one already. And this one right here next to a 527. We emptied that. That was a drug-infested building, both of these. The one right here next to a 559, drug-infested. It's a slow day, huh? Yeah. All these folks out here, the police, all these folks out here affiliated with drugs. Ain't nobody out here now because the police there. This is the building I live in, what, 575, right here? yeah. The Ida B. Wells Project is on the south side of Chicago. Wells opened its doors in 1941, when housing segregation was still legal, a cluster of mid-rise apartment buildings for 13,000 African Americans. Experts call the people who now live at Wells the hardest to house. Many of them have substance abuse problems, uh, mental illness, or long criminal records. But some are still here just because they don't want to move. Now they have to. Michael started recording his audio diary while he was waiting to move. We're in the park now. You very seldom see kids. It's dope crackheads. That's all that's be in the park. There's about 20 or 30 people out here. No kids. All dope and crackheads. And what's sad, this is every day, all day. Each dealer attracts his own customers for his own brand of crack or heroin. The names include USDA, Red Bull, and, believe it or not, Obama. I'm headed to 39th Cottage over to Mandrake Pond, where I hang out with the old-timers, sit and play cards. Tell jokes, tell a few lies. 
Michael has his regular card table in the park and a guy he plays chess with almost every day. The friends reminisce about the old times, when kids still played in the playground, and people who shot up at least disposed of their needles instead of leaving them everywhere. That's the worst thing you can do with the needle. You can be through with them, dispose of the correct way. You got kids out here, you know how bad they is. Now nah, they ain't grow up like how we did. I've I, I been around people. My uncle used to shoot up. He, he shot up and had an overdose. Yeah. But he was respectful, you know, back in the day. He right, was respectful with his He would pick his needle up. He would break the thing off, too. Not only that, smoking crack, you shouldn't be doing that in front of kids. Mm-hmm. Doing blows, you shouldn't do none of that. respectful, man. Michael and his friends say a long time ago, people were proud to live at Chicago's Ida B. Wells projects. Michael remembers when neighbors mowed the lawn here and kept up their apartments. But drugs took hold in the late 70s and the early 80s, just as blue-collar jobs in the neighborhood were disappearing. Drug dealers became the breadwinners. Kids sold drugs to their parents. The gangsters made the rules. But they won't be working out of Wells anymore. At summer's end, all the buildings were boarded up, including Michael's, and all the residents were gone. So I've been here a month, a month and two days. Michael found an apartment 30 blocks south of Wells. He stands at the door of his new building. He's smiling. It's a three-story brick building with a security entrance and a fenced backyard. Sprinklers keep the lawn green. So far, it's been, it been great. Uh, I like the building because it's clean all the time. It's, it's no people standing in front. And, you know, it's a big difference from where I came from. Let me show you the backyard sure. and stuff. Other okay. night, sitting out in the yard. Got chairs and stuff, grills out here. You got a nice wooden fence, a little bit yeah. of grass, a little yeah. bit of brick. And like, uh, even coming in from the alley, you need a key to get in, so you don't have to worry about people just walking in on you and stuff. It's a big difference, yeah. One flight up, Michael's kitchen and bathroom have modern fixtures. The Chicago Housing Authority gave him $200 to help with the move. He spent it on a microwave, a set of dishes, and some minutes for his cell phone. He'll pay $20 a month rent, which leaves him $80 plus food stamps to live on for the month. Only thing I I can see is hurting me. It all depends on what this light bill is going to be like. Other than that, yeah, I can make it. Michael knows there are programs to help him with his utility bills, just like there are programs to help him find a job. He's been through many of them. He keeps certificates of completion in a cardboard box in his closet, and he's proud to show them off. So this is the goal-setting workshop? Yeah. The mock interview workshop. Perfect attendance in the Building Craft Trades training program. It's not happening. You know, I've been places, put in applications and stuff, and, and, and tried to use these little certificates I got at one time to get different jobs. It, it just wasn't happening. For me, I think it's, to be honest with you, uh, me being my age and not having a high school diploma. That's it. That's it and that's all. The idea behind the new housing plan is to mix together people of different incomes. That way, poor people can see other ways to live and that not all neighborhoods are ruled by drug dealers. But Michael isn't really mixing with his new neighbors. Most days he takes the bus back to his old neighborhood where his friends and connections are. Hello? Hey, how you doing, Barbara? What's happening tomorrow? He might not make it without his old friends. They're the ones who find him the odd jobs that help him survive. $50 a day, we finna hang a sailor. That's our odd job. Michael has also applied for Social Security disability because he has diabetes. But if his income goes up, so will his rent. Michael doesn't see how moving will help him become more self-sufficient or more likely to find work. He misses being closer to his friends. Still, Michael says he's glad he had to move. The idea of moving people out of the projects is based on a program that actually worked. That program came from the civil rights era. Chicago's public housing projects had turned into warehouses for poor black people. Local housing ordinances excluded African Americans from the suburbs and many of Chicago's neighborhoods. Black people were confined to a few wards on Chicago's south and west sides. So the high-rises got higher and more crowded. My place 
is in the sunlight of opportunity. My place is in the dignity of a good job. In 1966, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. brought his Poor People's Campaign to Chicago. He rallied for better schools and more jobs, but his main focus was on housing. Once the city is open and it is known that we can get out of the ghetto, everything else begins to improve outside and inside. It was called the Chicago Freedom Movement. All summer, Dr. King led protest marches through Chicago's all-white neighborhoods. Meanwhile, downtown, civil liberties lawyers were preparing their own battle against segregation. In August 1966, the movements came together when a public housing resident named Dorothy Gautreau put her name on a class-action lawsuit against the city and the federal government. Lawyer Alex Polakoff took the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. We were lucky because we got, first of all, evidence that we didn't expect to get. Polakoff had to prove racial animus. He had to show that Chicago was intentionally keeping black people out of white neighborhoods. We found some memos and we had some testimony from aldermen and, and others, even people on the CHA staff. So surprisingly, we got the smoking gun. Yeah, we're putting these buildings in black neighborhoods because we don't want blacks to have access to white neighborhoods through subsidized housing. The Gautreau case was settled 10 years later in 1976. The government funded a plan to move residents to neighborhoods that were at least 70 percent white. That's how more than 3,500 black families found themselves in the Chicago suburbs. Those Gautreau families were the subject of a long-term study by James Rosenbaum of Northwestern University. We found that those that moved to the suburbs were more likely to graduate from high school. They were more likely to go to college. They were more likely to go to better colleges, four-year colleges. Uh, Those that didn't go to college, we found, were more likely to have jobs, and they had better jobs, jobs with better pay and jobs with benefits. People changed, children changed, and they, they caught up. And so it was a very striking, strong impact. Jamila Gilbert lived in Chicago's housing projects when she was a little girl. She went to kindergarten at a neighborhood school. I know that the school I went to water bugs all through the, and it was just roaches all through the, the, the classrooms and there was no air conditioning and there, some windows were busted out never replaced. I knew that other schools on TV were not like this school. In 1976, Jamila's mother heard about Gautreau and saw a way out of the projects. The Gautreau program helped her move 20 miles west to the suburb of Woodridge. For Jamila and her two sisters, it was a different world. Grass, <laughs> trees, um, nicely paved roads, cut and manicured lawns. It was like stuff I saw on TV, but I'd never seen it before with my own eyes. And I just remember looking around thinking, I am, where am I? Jamila remembers one biracial girl her age, but everyone else was white. That was part of the Gautreau plan. The communities had to be mostly white. The kids stared. And I stared, too. You know, we were looking at each other. But children are just forgiving, and they are embracing, you know. It was the teachers that was, it was very difficult to walk down the hall because the teachers would move their their line of students away. Every time we entered a circle or a group or an organization or anything, we had to, we went in knowing that we had to get people time to get used to us. We had to. It was just part of it. You know, smile, be on our best behavior, please and thank you. Do all we knew how to, what we needed to do to reassure everyone that we were safe because people didn't, they act like we weren't safe. So you were constantly being tested? <laughs> oh, constantly. And it, and it got to the point where you just, you get used to it, you know? Okay, when you walk into a restaurant, we haven't been in this restaurant before, children. So we all knew. My mom look at us like, you know what to do. So, you know. And then, so if we visited again, oh, okay, that family's safe, you know? When they arrived in Woodridge, they found themselves in a strange white world with few prospects. They worked the world for all it was worth. The Woodridge years were captured in a 60 Minutes episode that aired on CBS News in 1993. Valencia Morris is Jamila's mother. Valencia Morris went back to school, got a nursing degree, and got off welfare. 
I was embarrassed when I would go to the store with food stamps and everyone around me either whipped out checks or cash. I would remember thinking, Mom, you know, Mom, I wasn't angry with her for bringing us out there. I was just angry that once we're out there, it's hard as a kid to see why you just don't have what others have. We couldn't, she couldn't afford childcare. Um, and we didn't know this at the time, that it was very unconventional for a, a college student to be bringing her children to class with her. <laughs> she parted the class? Oh, yes. We, we attended college with her. Valencia Morris worked two jobs while she got her nursing degree. By the time her girls were in third and fourth grade, they were getting themselves off to school and watching their little sister. Their mother was gone a lot. But Jamila says Valencia Morris helped her daughters become strong, self-confident, and proud to be black. Paul, in second grade, told me I was ugly and my skin was black and ugly. Am I ugly? And then the next day my mother is telling me how beautiful I am. And I knew that she was beautiful and I looked like her, so I am beautiful. And after that, couldn't nobody tell me I wasn't beautiful because I already knew it. My mom would tell us, you are intelligent. You are the smartest children in that school. Did you know that? If we did cheerleading, we were the best cheerleaders. <laughs> Whatever we did, we, you know, if we wrote, we were the best at writing. I guess it might sound like uh, she was giving us or building us up, you know, with the big head, but she was completely counter-attacking <laughs> and um, all of the the lies that we were being told um, outside of the house. And then as we, you know, grew into uh, high school students and teenagers and, and start to realize that, no, we were not necessarily the best in class, but by that time, you know, we had reached, we had overcome that really fragile age. Jamila's mother became a nurse. All three daughters earned college scholarships and went on to professional careers. Jamila and her husband, Mark, are teachers. They live in an integrated neighborhood in Bloomington, Illinois, a two-hour drive south of Chicago. Okay, you guys washed your hands? Yes. At dinner time, everyone pitches in to set the table for takeout pizza, a rare treat. Mom, I was waiting for dinner. Oh, okay. The dining room is a bit cramped for six people. The Gilberts have lived in this small, creaky two-bedroom house for 12 years. The three girls share one room, and Mark Jr. sleeps on a mattress in the upstairs hallway. Mark and Jamila have been saving for a bigger house. Honey, could we talk through the second house again? Um, right now, you know I'm about to, we can, we can talk, mm-hmm. but right now I'm about to get down to some serious eating. Yes, you'll eat, and I can talk, because I know you don't like to talk and eat. Can I talk about the first house? I'd be sure. glad. You can talk about, what did you think of the first house? I liked it. Nine-year-old Nia is excited about moving. I'd like to see six bedrooms. I'd like to see the stairwell be pretty big and have carpet on it. Um... Mark and Jamila's kids can't even imagine the world of the Chicago housing projects, the world their grandmother opted to leave. Valencia Morris joined the middle class, and all three of her daughters are professionals with good incomes. Jamila says credit for their success goes to the Gautreaux program, but it also goes to her mother. She she just insisted, so whether we were in the suburbs or not, we were going to excel and live up to a certain standard of living and, and, and achieving, we were going to achieve as high as that ceiling allowed us to go. Um, and in the suburbs, it's amazing how driving 20 miles west, the ceiling was lifted. The Gautreaux plan started in 1976. It moved more than 7,000 Chicago families who signed up to get out of the housing projects. The Gautreaux program ended in 1998. This is Stephen Smith. You're listening to an American Radio Works documentary, After the Projects. Coming up... You see a father, a provider. You see a role model. That's a, that's a good thing for a black child growing up that's been saying, okay, I've been living here all these years. I haven't seen too many black guys going out here with briefcases and jobs. To hear more from Michael Whitehead's audio diary and to see a slideshow of the Ida B. Wells housing projects, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. 
There you can download this and all of our other American Radio Works programs, all of that at AmericanRadioWorks.org. After the Projects is part of The Real Face of Poverty, sustained coverage of poverty and opportunity in the United States. Support for the series comes from the Northwest Area Foundation. Major funding for American Radio Works is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Stay with us. Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, After the Projects. I'm Stephen Smith. In most American cities, giant public housing projects have been demolished in recent years. In Chicago, some former public housing residents have moved to apartments throughout the city. The hope is that getting away from concentrated poverty will lead to better lives, and for many families, the quality of everyday life is better in the new place. But many other public housing tenants still live in rough neighborhoods. They ended up renting apartments in areas with high poverty and few jobs. Their kids are still attending poorly performing schools. That is why so many urban reformers are pinning their anti-poverty hopes on a different initiative, brand new mixed-income developments. American Radio Works wanted to know what happens when policymakers deliberately try to mix homeowners and renters with steady jobs with people who have lived all their lives in public housing. Chief economics correspondent Chris Farrell has been looking into this question in Chicago. Chris? Well, we looked at a number of these developments that had these suburban-sounding names like West Haven and Oakwood Shores. So the massive public housing complexes are coming down, and on those vacant lots, they're building two, three-story condos, townhomes, nice brick fronts, and siding. Who built these places? Private developers. The developers get land for free. The city gets a new way to house the poor. And the middle class, they get to rent or buy relatively inexpensive condos that are near work. But it's a high-stakes experiment. We talked to Professor Mark Joseph about it. He's from Case Western Reserve University, and he's studying these new developments. It's not just about getting people of various backgrounds onto one single site, but really trying to integrate them physically so they're actually living as close to each other as possible. They're sharing hallways and elevators and public space. So you're really creating a situation where people are going to be able to get to know each other and interact with each other. So here's the goal. One third of the residents in a mixed income development will be paying the market rate either as renters or homeowners. One third are the working poor and their rent will be subsidized. And one third are the public housing residents. Now, the public housing residents do have to qualify. There are several tests they have to pass. Drug test, criminal background, and then they have to have a job, show that they're trying to get a job, or at a minimum, getting the education that might lead to work. The idea is to nudge the former public housing residents into the middle class by learning from the example of the people next door. But so far, relations between these new neighbors have been a bit uneasy. One of the new developments Professor Mark Joseph is studying is called West Haven. It's still under construction on the site of the old Henry Horner homes. Luke Jones and Calvin Kinsey grew up at Horner. They're in the front yard of a neat three-story walk-up visiting relatives. They come from a long time. I've been around here a long time. Yeah, this place come from a long way. I tell you, it ain't like it used to be. It's, it's uh, way, way different. Way, way different. And it's beautiful. And they did a good job, a very good job. Henry Horner used to be one square mile of mostly high-rise housing for 23,000 poor black families. They had 15 stories high, and the building was side by side. Like this, that's too many people. It was like a jailhouse. It really was. Now all the 15-story buildings are down. Two nine-story buildings stand at opposite ends of the development that replaced Henry Horner. One of those buildings is new, and the other is renovated. The renovated building is where Annette Hunt lives. And this is the uh, exit area that goes right out into the uh, parking lot. This is the parking lot area. Oh, it's the fenced-in parking lot. Yeah. Annette Hunt's building is finally safe and secure. You need a key now to get in and you pass a security desk at the entrance. Nice. Annette lives on the fourth floor. Uh, this is a three-bedroom apartment. I can't show you all the bedrooms since my kids haven't come up their rooms. The kitchen and living room are spacious and neat. Furniture is simple, a sofa, TV, and a glass dinette set. There's no hint of the old decay. 
Annette hasn't lived in a place this nice before. Uh, my mom would get these apartments and we would stay there for a minute. And next thing you know, we was put out in the streets. And most of our, our food came from churches. We had churches bring our food we could survive. And no one really knew you weren't going to school? No, because my mom didn't care. My mom wasn't there. My mom was in a, a crack house. She wasn't there, so she didn't care that it, if, if I went to school or not. Annette left school in the fifth grade. She was 13 before her mother got off drugs. That was in 1967. Her mom moved the family to Henry Horner. For Annette, it was a step up, but she never did go back to school. She had children of her own and raised them at Horner, too. By the 1980s, when her children were still small, conditions at Horner had deteriorated. It was like roach-infested. Mice was running all through the houses. And, I mean, you open your cabin and just click your light out and a gag of roaches jump out from everywhere. And most of us had to sleep with, you know, my kids and myself had to sleep with cotton in our ear because we got roaches in our ears and that roaches would lay a nest so we had to go over to the hospital to get it out. Annette's public housing project was descending into chaos. Drug addicts slept in the hallways of her building and used them for a bathroom. Dealers controlled the entrances, and gangs ruled the streets. Of the 3,000 units at Horner, half stood empty. My son, I think it's about 14 years old, we used to have a store back there on Polina called Cicero, where all the kids go to once they get out of school. And my son went to that, the store, and he come running home to me. He said, Mom, Mom, I'm like, what happened? What happened? He said, uh, some guys jumped out of the car and stuck him up and took his jacket. The kids couldn't even walk a block without getting beat up or trying to get them to jump them into gangs. By 1991, Annette and a few other mothers were fed up. With the help of legal aid, they filed a lawsuit against the government. The reason why I did it because I wanted to show my kids that you can't give up. We're going to live here. Let's make it our own. Let's change it. They did change it. The lawsuit was settled in 1995. The high-rises were all torn down. Annette's building is all public housing, but completely fixed up. Other Horner residents moved into renovated brownstones in the surrounding neighborhood. And still others are in the ambitious housing development called West Haven. West Haven is a mix of subsidized housing, full-price rentals, and owner-occupied condos. Developer Rich Shortino says the homes for poor people will look just like the homes for middle-class people. And when you drive through the neighborhood, you wouldn't you wouldn't know if this was a rental building or a homeownership building or condominium association. It's just going to look like a neighborhood. And I, I think that's our intent. The new Chicago neighborhood covers 14 city blocks. Most of the new homes are three-story brick. The design is contemporary, and no two are alike. There are blocks of modern row houses and other blocks with standalone townhomes. Many have wrought iron balconies, bay windows, or patio doors. They have small, tidy lawns, freshly poured sidewalks, and mulch-covered boulevards. Half the development is complete, and half is still under construction. I closed July 5th of 06. Antoine Dobson was one of the first people to buy a condo. He paid more than $300,000 for a two-bedroom unit in West Haven's only new high-rise. It's nine stories. A few public housing families live on each floor, but most of the units sell or rent for thousands of dollars a month. And, and this location is actually almost the heart of the city. You have access to all the expressways basically in the, the immediate Chicago area. It's 10 minutes to downtown and just a few minutes to Oprah Winfrey's TV studio, which anchors blocks of lively restaurants and luxury apartments. But you don't have to pay luxury prices to live at West Haven. That's one of the reasons Antoine bought here. He also likes being near where he grew up. I'm actually reared on the west side, the more rougher part, further west. So this was like nice to come back somewhere near the community I grew up in. Antoine is a big man in his early 30s. He grew up poor. He lived in a foster home not far from here, surrounded by gangs, drugs, and violence. It's the statistic that I'm supposed to be dead or in jail. In fact, I'm not dead or in jail. I make decent earnings, married, property. I have a a good job, and it's a job I always wanted to do. When he was a kid, Antoine found mentors at the local firehouse. Today, he is a firefighter. I am assigned to Engine 38 in the city of Chicago, the busiest engine in the city of Chicago. We suppress the fire. We find the fire and put the fire out. We rock and roll. We're pretty busy. 
Antoine is active in his condo association. He wants to protect his investment. Well, there's a constant fear that the property value is going to be decreased because of the, the crimes and uh, just the things that are not favorable to a community. Part of the point is for working people to provide an example. Antoine doesn't go out and mentor people, but he hopes his own lifestyle shows that there are alternatives to being a drug dealer or to getting a government check. It's a different lifestyle from what they come from to what it is here. So the different lifestyle is a culture shock to both homeowners and to some homeowners and to some CHA residents. Uh, the, challenge is, is the challenge is trying to get both entities to mesh together a little bit better. It's hard. Most market rate residents are like Antoine, singles and couples just starting out. Most public housing tenants have kids. Many of them are teenagers who take their loud music outside. Neighbors complain about gangs coming in from outside the community, and they don't like it when the residents themselves hang around during the day. Developer Shortino says loitering was a problem in Antoine's building. The public housing residents were, um, there's no work requirement here, so they're not necessarily working during the day. And they could come down and sit in the lobby for hours. Sometimes they'd be there all day. The condo owners would come home from work, and the same people would be. There'd be a group group of people hanging out in the the lobby. And um, it turned into this little confrontation. And the next thing I know, the... The condo association decided to take all the furniture out of the lobby and they put it in you know, the meeting room and they locked it up so that nobody could sit there. There are rules. The condo owner, this is the condo owner's mentality. There are rules. Everybody's got to follow the rules. doesn't matter who they are. Just follow the rules. And, and I'm always preaching, you know what, that's simple to say, but people are people. It's not black and white. Can, you know, why don't you get engaged a little bit? Get to know everybody, you'll know who your neighbors are. Once you get to know people, they'll be neighbors, they're not gonna be. And you know, the attitude is, listen, I work all day long. All I wanna do is come home and open a beer and watch TV, I don't really wanna engage. So that's been, I, I think, our, our biggest hurdle, is what we had hoped was we were gonna be able to get people to engage. We didn't expect that we were gonna get everyone to engage. But we're not getting, we're getting very little engagement whatsoever. Rich Shortino mediated a settlement so that Antoine Dobson's lobby has its furniture back, along with a no loitering rule. Antoine says there should be more rules for public housing residents, including a rule that requires them to work. If you've got nothing to do, you're going to probably end up doing something wrong. And the work gives you a sense of responsibility. So now if you've got to go to work, you're not... You're not going to have the, your, your, your buddies and your relatives come over 2, 3, 4 in the morning making all this noise whack. It's not you got to get up and go to work. It's not like we're saying, you know, you have to have a job or we're gonna, you're going to get evicted. What we're saying is we'd love you to have, for you to have a job, but if you don't have a job, then you should be, you know, trying to find a job or working on your skills so that you can get a job. This summer, developer Shortino and resident Dobson got their way, sort of. It's called the Horner Engagement Program, and it says public housing residents must be looking for work. Going to school counts if you don't have a high school diploma or marketable skills. That's why at the other end of West Haven, Annette Hunt is walking to class. And I'm almost at the finishing point of that. Then I'll just go right over to the GED. You need to use Excel, that's what Yeah. Annette walks to class four days a week, past the brand new condominiums that are for sale in her neighborhood. She predicts they'll go quickly because of the location, and that scares her. If everything keeps changing, it's, it's going to be harder and harder to live. It's just that they're going to fade us out. In a second, we're not going to be here. I believe that with all my heart. Annette is afraid that market demand for her Chicago neighborhood will lead to gentrification. Property will become so valuable, there will be no room left for poor people like her. Are you hopeful that you can work yes. all this out with your Oh, yes. oh yes, but they have to come to the table, to the table. not when it's mm-hmm. a crisis. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Not when it's a crisis. Absolutely. Annette and her neighbors have attracted the attention of many scholars. In the community room of their renovated building, Annette and two friends field questions from graduate students about what the mixed-income experiment is like. They want the students to know it's not just the public housing tenants that present problems. Their middle-class neighbors can be a nuisance, too. 
They have different habits and different pets. One of, the, one of the biggest things that we have a problem with is the dogs. <laughs> I, I like to say this all the time. We don't do dogs. We do cats. <laughs> but we don't do dogs. If you look outside, you walk on the grass, you see poop everywhere. We don't do that. That's an issue. That's an issue. If you have your dog, clean up the same way. If we're sitting in a lobby, you know you're not supposed to sit in the lobby, go upstairs. You know, it's the same thing. That's antisocial. For the mixed income communities to succeed, public housing residents and their better off neighbors will have to find common ground. Annette's friend Crystal Palmer says those who want to live in public housing will also have to find work. Let's get on the bandwagon. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, let's become self-sufficient because if you don't, those of us that work won't be able to live here because you that didn't work, didn't pay into the property, and we're going to be displaced because you didn't help. Didn't work. Yeah. But help keep this clarify community. why she keep pointing to her, Crystal. I, 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 I don't I'm work just, at the present time. But I did work for over 10 years, and uh, I, I'm presently going to school right now. But I don't have a problem with being uh, self-sufficient and going out there and do what I need to do to, save my, to keep my apartment. I just didn't like how it was the, the way it was uh, presented because I felt like it, would, it had to be my choice to do it, but now I'm forced to do it now. Some people think Chicago is moving too quickly. The city tore down all the public housing projects to eliminate the violence and poverty bred there. But the Chicago Housing Authority still hasn't figured out where all the residents should go. It's turning out to be a hard question for the city and the residents. Some public housing residents have taken Section 8 vouchers to help pay their rent to private landlords. Some have moved into new mixed-income neighborhoods. Professor Mark Joseph studies the new mixed-income developments, and he knows that not all public housing residents will qualify to live in them. One of the key uh, elements of these new mixed-income developments is a very high degree of screening in terms of who gets to live there. Not just anyone. Uh, is going to be able to live in this new community if it's going to effectively attract and sustain a broad range of families from various income levels and economic backgrounds. Uh, It's got to be a set of folks who are willing to abide by certain rules and live their lives in certain ways and not create problems in the new community. Most of the new developments require drug screening, a good credit history, and a criminal background check. There are residents who may think, well, I might pass it now, but can I continue to pass these things, right? Residents continue to be screened and monitored when they're in the developments. Joseph says the rules force some mothers into an impossible choice. Do they move to a safer neighborhood with a better school for the sake of the little ones? Or do they stay behind with teenagers who may have criminal records that disqualify the family from moving? So thousands of people are staying in Chicago's public housing. They may not qualify for other choices, or they may simply be more comfortable living in their familiar surroundings. It's a dilemma for the Lawson family. Donzella Lawson leaves her oxygen tank upstairs when she's visiting her daughter, Elena, who lives on the third floor of a mid-rise building in the Dearborn housing projects. The Lawsons have been at Dearborn for three generations. I'm making it. I'm making it. I said we're getting ready. On this late spring day, Elena Lawson's apartment is extra crowded with social workers and family members. They've come to help Elena and her mother move. I want those. I eat those. The city is closing the building that Elena and her mother live in. They must move to another building at Dearborn while the housing authority builds them a new home. They have a choice. They can move to a new mixed-income development or stay at Dearborn in a renovated apartment. Valerie Wright is a social worker whose job is to help the Lawsons make that choice. So Dearborn will still be public housing. It all be the same. It's just newly rehabbed. You're going to get brand new everything. But it's going to be the same people. No. Why are you saying no? I say no because um, um, CHA is implementing new work, the work policy. It's things that are being changed that will affect the developments and how, you know, that the things that are being changed with the residents 
will affect, the will affect the development once it's redone in, in its entirety. Like drugs, like you have to work or go to school. Exactly. The Chicago Housing Authority is changing the rules and, it hopes, the culture of public housing. Starting this year, tenants who can must work 30 hours a week or prove that they're looking for work. The rules may be even stricter in the new mixed-income developments. Private landlords can require drug tests and prohibit loitering or other activities they think are antisocial. And that sounds good to Elena. I chose Oakwood Shores. Elena wants to get her two teenage sons away from the gang violence that still dominates life at Dearborn. My sons don't even come outside. I keep, when I take my sons out, I'm with them. By themselves, no. They're not, no. Come on, gangs, come on, gangs. Um, it threats like, if you don't join us, we're going to assume that you're with another gang, and we're going to try to um, beat you up to make you join our gang. That's Paris Lawson, the 15-year-old. He says gangsters who try to recruit him call him gay or lame or white. You put family over, they, you put family over, family over reputation in, in high school. Um, I go to, I go to school because I want to go to college and have a good job. So I can provide for people around me, like my mom, my family, and I might have kids someday, and I did not want them growing up the way I did. I want them to have a better life than, than me. So his mother, Elena, has decided to live in a better Chicago neighborhood. She's on the waiting list for a public housing unit in a new mixed-income development with a view of Lake Michigan. She wants her sons to be around new people. For real, I want them in that environment where you open up your door. Yes, you see a man going to work every day. Not just a mother doing everything. You see a man playing his part as well. You see a father, a provider. You see a role model. That's a, that's a good thing for a black child growing up that's been saying, okay, I've been living here all day, all these years. I haven't seen too many black guys going out here with briefcases and jobs. Elena thinks the move would be good for her mother, too. Okay, she coming around. She do. She ready to make that move. And that's what, all I wanted for my mom. You know how happy I'm going to be to say, come on, mama. You can walk on to the lake. I'll take my time walking with her. We'll be going shopping together. She'll feel more comfortable getting out with her oxygen tank. She don't, she don't like that. I said, that's why you need to be free. Get out. Elena moved to her temporary apartment last May. In July, she found a job with a contractor for the Chicago Housing Authority. She takes two buses to the big red building in the East Loop and an elevator up to the 13th floor. I'm using Excel, Word, Prologue. Prologue Manager is like a construction database. Elena's gray cubicle is among several dozen on her floor. There's a hard hat on her top shelf and several fat reports on her desk. I be on the move. I'm working. (laughs) But Elena couldn't quite reach escape velocity when it came to leaving Dearborn. She changed her mind about going to Oakwood Shores, and she can't change it back. She'll be staying at Dearborn with her mother. I wasn't going to make my mom do it, because I, I didn't want that weight on me, on my heart. I move her and she pass. So if it takes for me to stay where I am with my mom so she could sleep a little better at night, the time that she has left here, I'll do that. I will. And I don't mind doing anything for my mom. I mean, she gave up her life for us. She did. So I have to give that back. Elena is still picturing a better future for her sons. She's found a mentor for Paris, and she says she's trying to save money to send Paris to a private school to get him away from the gangs. Most of Chicago's giant public housing complexes are gone. The infamous high-rises on the south and west sides of the city are down. Slowly taking their place are new neighborhoods of low-rise condos and townhomes. For sale signs and for lease signs are everywhere on the construction sites. What's missing is retail. Without a local dry cleaner, a coffee shop, a couple of restaurants, it's hard to imagine that these neighborhoods will become real middle-class communities. They are works in progress. Mark Joseph of Case Western Reserve. Simply putting people to live next to each other in proximity is not going to be enough. It's going to take far more uh, than building some high-quality housing and putting people in a social environment where they're surrounded by others who are working. You need to have jobs. And so the fact that we're in a struggling uh, national and local economy uh, means that that part of the puzzle is not going to be solved. 
Jobs are critical, and so are good schools. Both are lacking in Chicago and in poor neighborhoods around the country. With the current economic downturn eliminating jobs and making it harder to fund schools, Chris Farrell, how can this be a good time to try a risky housing experiment? You know, Stephen, something had to be done. Certainly this is better than nothing. We spent a year talking with residents as they were moving out of the Chicago projects and into their new condos and apartments. And there is no question, the living conditions are better, the apartments are nice, they're secure, there's more police protection. But the story doesn't end there. All is not solved. No. And you know, after all the time we spent in Chicago and studying this issue, I wish you could say, here's the answer. But there are a lot of questions that remain. For example, many of the people have moved out of these public housing projects into another neighborhood, but it turns out in that neighborhood, they're still surrounded by lots of poor people, there aren't any jobs, and their kids are going to the same bad schools. And then with the mixed income development communities, well, we're seeing some culture clashes, not so much of rubbing shoulders and learning, but kind of not sure how we're going to get along. So will this development of concrete and brick become a community and a neighborhood? We don't have the answer to that. Putting up buildings is really easy. Changing lives, lives that have been stuck in persistent poverty generation after generation, remains hard. There is obviously no one prescription for eliminating poverty. But common sense and scholarly research both come to the same conclusion. Place matters. To some extent, we are who we know and where we live. The values and the expectations of a community, the ambitions and examples of our neighbors, the ties of family, and the networks of peers are all critical. After the old projects are gone, the risk is that whatever fragile progress has been made will disappear without greater effort to bring the poor into the American mainstream. After the Projects was produced by Laurie Stern and Chris Farrell. It was edited by Catherine Winter. We had help from Ellen Gettler, Ocean Kalin, Suzanne Pico, Nancy Rosenbaum, Ariel Kitsch, and Craig Thorson. I'm Stephen Smith. To learn more about Section 8 vouchers and Chicago's plan for transformation, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. There you can listen to this and other American Radio Works programs, download our podcast, and sign up for our email newsletter. It's all at AmericanRadioWorks.org. After the Projects is part of The Real Face of Poverty, sustained coverage of poverty and opportunity in the United States. Support for the series comes from the Northwest Area Foundation. Major funding for American Radio Works is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. American Public Media 